Hello and a warm welcome to you. This is Young Stroke Survivors Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stops, and I wear the proud badge of a young stroke survivor. My stroke birthday was November 2021. Now, what is this podcast all about, you may wonder? Well, it's here to enlighten, entertain, and perhaps even stir up a bit of healthy debate. We'll be featuring incredible stories from survivors, carers, healthcare pros, and anyone else with a curious stroke-related tale to tell. On one word of caution, some episodes might delve into the world of grown-up topics, so you might want to keep those trusty headphones close by. Anywho, on with the show, we're about to take you on quite the journey. So right after the stroke, I don't remember the trip up from emergency to critical care. I think I'm not sure what happened, but I remember waking up in critical care um, and I was hooked up to lots of monitors and my arm was completely lifeless. Um, My foot was completely lifeless. My speech was um, very, very slurred, almost non-intelligible. And I remember feeling, the first feeling was, oh my God, I'm broken. No one's going to love me. And I just started wailing, um, sobbing. And my husband was there and was trying to calm me down. But I was really, really distressed. And um, it took one of the nurses to give me a sedative to calm me down. And that was my first night. Um, and then I just slept. I, I think I was in critical care for 24, maybe 36 hours. I went, it would have been the weekend actually, because I went into hospital with the stroke on Saturday morning. And I think I was moved into a ward on on Monday morning when they felt I'd stabilized enough. So that was my my initial reaction after I'd had the stroke. It's, it's interesting because while I was having it, um, I was very detached. I was watching it happen and thinking about it very uh, very logically and, and, and from a was from a distance. When I got up to critical care, I was in it. I, I was I was like I was freaking out. Um, I guess I thought that it would resolve because I had a, a TIA. That's what took me to hospital, and that resolved within an hour. And it was while I was being discharged that I had the had the actual stroke. I guess I kind of thought that it would re it would get better, and it didn't. I was put into a ward on Monday morning with um, three older women, and and that was quite an experience because. Um, one of the women played a radio. God knows where she, where she got a radio from. I didn't know you can get there anymore. But anyway, she had a transistor radio playing um, right-wing talkback radio all the time. One woman had her extended family around her pretty much all the time. So there was at least between five and ten people um, around her bed. And then she was directly opposite me. And the woman next to me, she was. She spent most of the time on the phone to friends and relatives asking for money for credit for her phone, which is ironic in a way because she was running her credit out by ringing all those people asking for money for credit. So that was my first few days in that ward. I think I was two days in that ward and the doctors saw the need for quiet for me um, because I was – I don't think those women had had strokes like – even though it was a stroke ward, I think they'd had their strokes like longer than, you know, I had. So they moved me from a, a um, the ward 
uh, to, I think it was Wednesday, to a private room, which was great because I I slept so so much. Yeah, it was the the physio said was great. Physio started like literally Monday. As soon as I got to the stroke ward, I was taken to do arm and and leg and foot physio. Um, my arm could do nothing. It was it was totally dead, like an elephant was trying to get just hung there. Um, so they had that up in a sling, but they worked on my foot um, because when I when I walked, my right foot just dragged. I could walk, but it was you know yeah with the, with the dragging right foot. So they put a elastic clip on my shoe to keep my foot up, um, and then I you know had to practice walking up and down stairs and things like that. Yeah, so that was that was the first few days. Um, and I was in hospital for 10 days altogether. So I, I slept a lot. I would have slept probably 20 hours a day while I was in hospital. And I only was awake for meals and for visits. But that was, that, that was it. The staff that were great, except for the night staff on the second week, I had this nurse, oh, what a pain. She would wake me like every couple of hours during the night to take my blood pressure and then she would just pick up my right arm and drop it and say, still paralyzed then, which was really dehumanizing, really horrible. Um, and because my sleep was getting broken every couple of hours, it might have even been every hour, in the end my husband went to and complained and said, don't wake my husband up during the night. Um, and after that I had a different nurse and he was he was great. He just took my blood pressure when I went to bed and then took it again when I woke up in the morning and let me sleep through the night. So that was wonderful. Fatigue is a really, really big issue when you've had a stroke, um, mainly because your brain's doing so much extra work, um, having to learn how to relearn, how to, how to do everything. Fatigue can be really, really, a really, really hard thing to, to, to deal with. And you have to learn really what causes you to lose a lot of energy, um, emotional or physical, so you can balance out your day. Um, the first few days coming home, or a few more than that, first few weeks coming home, even just me having a shower, that was it. That was, that was it for the rest of the day. I could have a shower and then I was absolutely fatigued and exhausted for pretty much the whole rest of the day. Now um, it's a lot better. I still have to plan my day a little bit. I know that there are certain activities that will tie me out. There are certain uh, places, uh, experiences that will, will um, tie me out phys physically or mentally. So I just have to be aware of, of what I'm doing and where I'm going and what I can handle because it's not like normal fatigue where you can push through. You get to a point where you hit a wall and then everything shuts down. My deficits are really pronounced. My speech becomes bad. I become emotional. Yeah, I have to learn. Well, I've learned that if I know I'm getting fatigued, I know I'm getting tired, um, I have to either stop and remove myself from the situation or, or just um, rest for, for a little while. I found that... Um, that resting is not not necessarily sleeping though. It's actually just closing my eyes and putting some headphones on and listening to some calm and beautiful music. If I do that for ten or fifteen minutes, I'm actually good. That has gone down quite considerably. I would, you know, the first year after the stroke, I would my resting 
would require sleep or would require me to rest, you know, with my eyes closed for an hour or so. Now it's, it's just 10 or 15 minutes. So it, it's gotten progressively better. One thing I've found that has been really, really good for um, for fatigue and for, for mental fog and for, for cognitive fatigue has been magnesium supplements. There is one called Neuromag, and I found that to be excellent. That has really increased my stamina and decreased my fatigue by a lot. And apparently magnesium is, is actually very good for fatigue and, and mental um, clarity. For me, it worked brilliantly, but every strike's unique, so it may or may not work for you. But yeah, for me, I found that to be great. So one of the weird things that happened in hospital was my speech. I didn't have aphasia, but my speech was very slurred and it was difficult. I had weakness in the muscles on the lower half of my face. So the right hand side of my of my mouth, the right hand tip of my tongue, it was difficult for me to be understood. When my speech, I had speech therapy every day in hospital, and when my speech started to clear up a little bit more, I had a re- I had reset, and I first learned to speak um, in England because that's where I was born. I spent my first four years there, so my speech came back with a very distinct British accent. That's what my speech therapist thought that, that my accent was. Um, a month later, when he called me at home to see how I was doing, and I answered the phone, he didn't realize it was me. Um, that was speaking because my accent had reverted back to to what it was before the stroke. That was very interesting that that happened. I had literally reset and developed the accent again that I that I first learned to speak with. Um, it's very very interesting that that happened, and and a lot of things happen with resets after the stroke. As far as aphasia goes, I do find myself um, having to think about what I'm saying a bit more, and that's probably because my tongue is still a bit numb, and I just need to give it chance to prepare the word in my mouth I guess I I did have a certain amount I, I don't know if it's a facial but I would like lose words so I would have a word on the tip of my tongue a, a very simple word you know like car or something or table and it'd be on the tip of my tongue and it wouldn't come out but that has gotten a lot better and that's improved a lot Sensory overload is a really massive thing when you've had a stroke and it gives me so much compassion and understanding of parents with little kids who end up screaming when they're going out or screaming in shopping centers because I felt like doing the same. I remember I first experienced sensory overload when a week after being discharged from hospital, I had to go to my GP. We drove down there. I didn't drive, obviously. I was a passenger. We drove down to the doctors and firstly, the drive, I was just going slow down, slow down, slow down. I felt like we were going way above the speed limit and it was, I was terrified um, and we weren't, we were doing about 40. So we got there and I, and I closed my eyes for the, for the journey. It was just horrible and got to the doctors, the car park and there wasn't a lot of people, but there were people walking around and that in itself, I, I was going, I started to panic. There all these people. I had to basically, when that happened that first day, um, my husband had to go into the doctors um, and when he was ready to see me, take me straight in and straight through um, so that I wouldn't have to sit in the waiting room um, with all those people. Going into a shopping centre, going to a cafe, going anywhere where there was more than 
one person was too much. What we've been doing, what we've done is um, basically just exposed me to more and more situations where there is a lot of people, where there's a lot of sound, where there's visual distractions, just so that I become desensitized again to uh, all the things that are going on so I don't have freak outs. So now I get sensory overload when I'm tired or fatigued. I don't get sensory overload as as much as I used to. I can still get it if I'm going to a new environment and it's usually that 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 brings it on. Even if it's somewhere I've been before, like if I've been to the place before the stroke but I haven't been there since, when I go there, even though I recognize it, it's, it's like a new environment. It's, it's strange. Um, and I'll get sensory overload after about um, 45 minutes there. Other places that we've been to and, and regularly, cafes or restaurants or or places anywhere like that, yeah, I can sit there for you know a couple of hours and I'm fine. You have to know your limits and you have to have an escape route. I know that if I, it's too much and we've gone out somewhere, I can go back to the car. I've got an eye mask. Um, and sometimes I take the earplugs with me so that if things do get a bit overwhelming, I just put them in and it cuts out one of the sensors. And, and that is actually kind of relieving when you're in that situation. Living with the disability after stroke, it's interesting. I come to the realization the other day, someone asked me, how's your health? I immediately went, oh, fine. Yeah, because I haven't had a cold, haven't had flu. You know, I've been relatively healthy. And so I said, good, yeah. And they said, no, no, how's your recovery going? And it struck me that I have never, ever since day one, thought of the stroke as being a health medical issue, but rather an injury. And so I'm recovering from an injury and I guess it's changed the way I view the stroke and I view my recovery. I see my recovery as being like a sprained ankle or a broken leg or something. If I do certain uh, rehab activities, I'll get it back. And I don't think of myself as being disabled, even even when I couldn't use my arm. It's only just now, and that's I'm two years out, out of the stroke, my, I'm, I'm working on fine motor skills with my hand. So my arm is, you know, moving normally. Um, my hand is active and, and useful, but I can't write and I'm still working on the finer motor skills. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, in, it's interesting. Even when I couldn't use my arm at all, even when I had a droopy foot, I've just thought of myself as recovering and not having a disability. That being said, you know, when I was learning to do everything with my left hand, that made things difficult. I, I just feel like I'm recovering. I don't know, it's a mindset, I think. After a stroke, obviously your body goes into a lot of shock. And so for the first week after the stroke, I was constipated, nothing worked. I mean, I could I could pee okay, but you know, everything else was, was had stopped. And then when I came home from hospital, probably for two months when I came home, because I guess a lot of things I was doing was like you know, learning how to have a shower by myself with one hand. And that, that took a you know a while before I you know graduated from having someone there with me to help me in the shower and, and dry me to being able to do it myself and things like walking up the stairs, all the things that, you know, I used to be able to do normally, I had to relearn how to do and also deal with the, the fatigue and everything else. So for the first probably two months, I had absolutely zero sex drive, like just nothing. 
And then about two months after recovery, I started slowly getting a sex drive back again, but there was no movement down below. So like I've never had erectile dysfunction, but I definitely had it after the stroke. Um, it was just like my arm, it just, just hung there. Gradually, slowly, I think a couple of months after that, you know, I was able to get erections again, but ejaculation was was not happening. Then I started having ejaculation, but it was a retrograde, so it meant that my muscles weren't strong enough. Nothing would come out. It would go back inside, which is a weird feeling and very unsatisfying. And I think it took probably six to nine months before I was able to function again uh, normally. It's funny, I was not interested in having sex with anybody during that time. I guess I was embarrassed. You know, I was very, very self-conscious, especially having an, an, an arm that just hung there as well. Everything sort of came back, but it really, it did take months and months. And I think it was just because everything had gone into shock. Everything is, all the muscles were weaker. I didn't know if it was permanent or temporary. I spoke to my doctor about it and um, we talked about Viagra. And he said, nope, because of the stroke. So I just just had to be patient. And eventually sort of everything started working again. But it took months before I was all back to normal. Stroke is like, I've always said, it's like a, a factory reset for your brain. And things go back to when you were really young. Having that happen and, and not knowing if or how long it's going to take to recover from it really can affect your mental health. Because you don't know if you're going to be stuck in this body forever or if it's going to take, you know, six months or, or six years to recover some, some normality. And that's really hard. And I've learned by talking to survivors how resilient this mob of people are. They're just so inspiring. And it's, it's really put me on the track to also be, you know, resilient. And, you know, when I'm feeling down, to remember that and to, and to be able to be able to pick myself up because, you know, there's, there just are times where everything seems too much. You feel like your body and your brain has betrayed you and you feel the weight of grief for everything that you've lost. It's really hard to bear sometimes. Vitamin B, um, a really good supplement for stopping me from getting too depressed. My doctor had given me some antidepressants, but I, I didn't want to take them because I, I noticed that it was affecting things like my creativity. So I'm sticking with the vitamin B. I'm making sure that I'm taking the time to meditate every day. Meditation is really, really, really good for mental health. You do have emotional outbursts. And again, factory reset, like you, you, emotions go back, your filters are gone. Your emotions go back to, to when you were you know, a toddler. And I remember having literal foot stamping tantrums. Um, one in particular, I remember... In the first year, um, my husband said to me something like, oh, don't be silly, something like that. And I immediately thought, I'm not silly. And I got really, really insulted by the fact that I, you know, I was sure he'd called me silly. I stamped my foot. I pouted. I, it was, I was like a five-year-old. Uh, it was incredible. And my husband just looked at me and said, um, excuse me? because it was unbelievable. And there have been a couple of times where I've had foot stamping tantrums, but I'm learning to reset those filters. The other outburst is crying, whether that's from joy or sadness or just fatigue. I'm learning to, to keep those in check. If, if I feel like a tantrum is coming on or I feel like I'm going to react, 
is to stop myself and take a breath. And and that's getting much better. But it's certainly in the first year, oh my God, the number of emotional outbursts, it was, it, I mean, it was really like, like I was a toddler again. Yeah, it was very, very difficult for me. Um, and I'm sure it was difficult for people around me as well. It's, it's, it's been really interesting. Some people have kind of kept the distance since I had the stroke. It's almost like either they don't want to see me like this or they don't know how to respond or react around me. Other people have just been, you know, just the same and just wonderful and, and it's, been, it's been great. It's made, made it a lot easier. But I've noticed that things have changed in terms of my friendships. And also I have a zero bullshit filter now. I'm not interested in playing games and if, if I notice people are, are being silly or, or whatever, I just, I yeah, I have zero tolerance. It's interesting because I think especially in the first first year because the filters had gone i would say exactly what was on my mind so if if someone was playing games or, or being bullshitty with me i would just tell them it would literally the truth would come out of my mouth before i'd even had a chance to to think my main carer is my husband because all my family is in australia and he has been he has been beyond fantastic just been so patient and encouraged me and can see when i'm experiencing fatigue and and knows if i'm trying to push through it and will just tell me that's it we're gonna go somewhere else we're gonna get out of the situation so he's he's been fantastic um really i couldn't have asked anyone better work is a challenge because fatigue is even when I try to plan my day, fatigue can still be unpredictable. Going back to to my old job, I mean, in as a teacher, this like I I'm nowhere near ready for that. And I, I and to be honest, I don't know if I want to do that again because in the classroom there's too many moving moving parts. That I would be like blown out after you know ten minutes, let alone a whole day. And plus, I'm I'm really wanting to to take my life in a different direction now. So I can't see myself as a teacher in the classroom, but definitely I'm looking now to to work part time. That would be really good because because in my recovery journey, I think I'm ready for part time work. Traveling. Yeah, it's been really interesting. So I went to Australia earlier this year and I found that the airport experience was really hard because there were so many people and there were so many things happening. And I'm really glad that I flew with my husband because he was able to keep me settled. I found that if if I have an aisle seat, that's really good because um, I can get up and move around the plane. I just walk a little bit. I bring an eye mask. I bring headphones and I can basically, you know, block myself off. It's just really the airport experience. And I've spoken to um, Air New Zealand about this. When I came back from Australia, I came back by myself because my husband stayed over there for a week when he had to get back for work. I stayed an extra week and I flew back myself. And it was all good except for when I got to Auckland, which is where I was the most worried because getting from the domestic to uh, the international terminal to domestic terminal to get my connecting flight was was worrying me and i was supposed to have a a wheelchair or or some sort of uh, support from an new zealand staff member to, to get over to the domestic terminal 
but no one came. So I was stuck on the air bridge for probably half an hour until I flagged someone down who was walking past, you know, from me in New Zealand, and they were able to help me and get me over there because by that time I, you know, I'd been flying for, you know, for five hours. I was exhausted. Um, so that wasn't good, but I, I've spoken to the Air New Zealand since about that and they've been really, really good um, and assured me that they put a note on my file so it won't happen again. Some of the things that I found helped me in my recovery, I hired or rented a hyperbaric chamber and had it for three months and went in there every single day for, for 90 minutes and I found that was excellent. There are companies around that, that hire out um, hyperbaric chambers. They're soft shells, so, and you basically sit in them. I mean, there is evidence that hyperbaric chamber therapy can help with brain injuries, so I'm sure it helped with mine. I am a musician. Um, I knew of lots of things like with my hand, lots of exercises and things to do to help you know build the strength back up. So I, I, I think that has probably helped in a way. Okay, so I'm going to finish off with a funny story and slightly humiliating for me about what happened in hospital to leave you with. If you're squeamish and don't like stories of the brown variety, turn off now. Otherwise, here we go. I had been in hospital for a week. And one of the things that happens after stroke, obviously, is your body goes into shock. And that means everything. So I hadn't been to the toilet. I was constipated for a week. And after five or six days, the nurse said they were going to give me some laxatives. So they gave me one type of laxative and it did nothing. By the next day, I still hadn't been to the toilet. So they gave me the nuclear option. They fed me this, this powder mixed in water and um, at breakfast time and I drank it and had my breakfast and I was fine. And all of a sudden, I could feel gurgling. Now, at that stage, while I was in hospital, I needed assistance getting out of bed, getting to the toilet, because my foot was still floppy, and I still needed assistance to get anywhere. So I thought, right, I obviously need to go to the toilet now. I rang the bell for the nurse, and nothing happened. So I rang the bell again for the nurse. Now, I know during the day, they're probably busy, you know, treating people who actually need help or need assistance, but... Things were getting very gurgly down below, and I knew that if I didn't get to the toilet soon, there was going to be a mess. So I rang the bell about two or three times repeatedly, and there was still no one coming, so I knew I had to get to the toilet. I got myself out of bed, I limped and struggled to the bathroom, got the door shut, got halfway across the bathroom because um, it was a large room, and suddenly the floodgates opened and there was nothing, absolutely nothing I could do to stop it. I was wearing shorts at the time and literally I had poo coming out of both legs of the shorts. Yeah, so it went everywhere and I mean everywhere. So I managed to slip and slide to, to the toilet. By then, everything that was going to come out had come out. And I went to press the help bell that was in the toilet, but I realized that the one that was at the toilet was broken and the only other one was at the door. So I had to then navigate my way through poo to get to the button, got there, pressed the call button, and went to navigate back, slipped 
fell in my own shit, got up, got back to the toilet, the door opened, the nurse looked in, took one look at me, slid the door shut again, and came back wearing a hazmat suit with a hose where she proceeded to literally hose me down, hose the room down, and it was probably, at the time, it was the most sobering and humiliating thing that had ever happened to me. But within five minutes of me getting back to bed, I could not stop laughing about it because it was so funny and I couldn't wait to, to tell the story of me waiting in my own shit. I was literally covered in it by the time the nurse got there. I was a little brown bear. So anyway, there's my story to leave you with. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you later.